Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it, and spills the upper boulders in the sun, and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding. To please the yelping dogs, the gaps, I mean, no one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go. To each the boulders that have fallen to each, and some are loaves and some so nearly balls, we have to use a spell to make them balance. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game. One on a side. It comes to little more. There, where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pine, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me. And I wonder, if I could put a notion in his head, why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. I see him there, bringing a stone grass firmly by the top, and each hand like an old stone savage armed He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not out of woods only in the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says it again. Good fences make good neighbors. Selections from Mending Wall by Robert Frost Another episode of Becoming Human. I'm Tyler Kleberger, and this is a show where I try to present ideas to guide us through the process of becoming human and building a better world. This is all about education and lifestyle all wrapped into one, which is how it should be anyways. Education without ethics is just meh, right? The the self-help world is built on giving you ideas without any formative groundwork or research foundation. And I don't want to bore you, but I also don't want to give sentimental inspiration without proper support, right? Wisdom is theory and practice interwoven together. And today, one of the best examples of this, we're going to get into one of my favorite conversations. And seriously, when I have engaged with this concept called map making, it has made a huge difference in how I grow and the joy of the relationships with others and in you know, dealing with these inevitable conflicts that happen anytime two people are together. And it's something I really wish that our culture would take the time to understand. So after, you know, I don't know how many episodes of me trying to prep this soil, it's finally time for map making. And we've set the groundwork for this. I'd recommend listening to the previous, you know, several episodes if you find yourself needing to fill in some blanks here. Um, but This is one of my favorite concepts that has a pretty daily effect. And in a culture, we're debating and arguing 
are, are like these social discourses we revert to, this is a practice I'd love to see gain some steam. Uh, you know, doing so, in my opinion, would offer a much fuller depiction of the best that human beings have to offer. Which, hey, why this is called becoming human. So let's get into it. Let's learn. Let's grow. And let's become a little more human in how we work with this strange, finite thing we call a perspective and the disagreements that so often result. Real quick, before we get started, I I do have a question I want to pose to you as we begin, but I really wanted to say, listen, I appreciate all of you who give up your precious time to listen to this, and I'm even more appreciative of those of you who support the show simply by telling folks about the show or subscribing, any of those things. And I I would ask that, hey, if you're listening and something impacts you, or you feel that, hey, that, that, that thought, that was valuable. One of the biggest things you can do to help me is to share the show. I mean, I, I hate this. I hate self-promotion, and I'm, I'm really not interested in playing the game that you know everybody says you have to play in order to have a successful podcast. But I am honest that the only way that folks are going to find out about this show is you. This podcast is not for everyone, right? We go a little deep sometimes and, you know, not everybody's interested in living in a particular way. But I also, I don't know all of the people in the world that would like it if they knew it existed. But I really do want to keep this as organic and meaningful and relational as possible. And so I am, I'm willing to depend on you all a little bit. So the primary way that people will know this exists It's if you tell them about it, I appreciate if you do. Anyone who's still listening to this unnecessary, desperate rambling, um, subscribing is also one of the greatest compliments you can give. So if you're listening on a streaming device, I'd be honored if you'd take a second, pause the show, hit the subscribe or follow or whatever button they have. And, uh, you know, if you're into this stuff, you can find more articles and resources at uh, tylerkleberguttcom um, or you can find me on Medium. I think it's tylerkleberger.medium.com and I post a lot of different articles on there as well. Um, I don't have transcripts of the show, but I do try to create articles based on the content I'm talking about. So if you need to like see it, you're that kind of person, you want to read it, that all that stuff's there as well. And, um, finally, if, if you want to like sign up for an email, I'll, I'll send you the articles or the podcast episodes when they come out. So you have any questions, um, or you want to share thoughts or ideas or just continue a conversation from an episode, um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. But here's a question to consider as we begin the much anticipated show on map making. What was the last argument you won? Now, if you're like me, you win all sorts of arguments all the time in your head. Seriously, when I am arguing with someone else, but it's just me talking to myself, right? Like pretending to say the things I would say to make points and counterpoints, I am so good. Like I'm a brilliant debater with the hypothetical other. 
In fact, I've only lost like six arguments I've had with other people in my head, which is a pretty solid record. But seriously, I want you to think about it. What's the last argument you won? Now, the question, it's just designed to get you to consider an argument you were in, you know, maybe recently, and what the progression of the argument was like and what the outcome did to you and or the other person. And I'm going to be honest, and this isn't meant to sound pretentious, I try my hardest to never actually argue with anyone. I, I do have the argument conversations in my head quite often. Maybe that's something I should you know, look into. Um, you know, I'll get an email or I'll see something on social media or think about something someone said, and I'll seriously like work through the points and come to some conclusions. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like it honestly helps me understand the topic at hand. It forces me to think deeper about the concept than I would if I you know, never had that fake argument. And it's also a good practice in empathy, right? Like imagining what someone else sees, feels, and thinks about and how that experience would, you know, assumably go. That's a good mental practice. But I don't really care for arguments because I've realized something about them, at least for me. Through arguing and debating, I've never actually changed someone's mind. Yet, through map making, I've watched lots of people grow and evolve their perspective almost every single time. And important to note, I'm always one of those people. And listen, if you're one of those people who argues well and engages in it proactively, I'm not condemning you here, okay? There are situations where I've seen someone confrontationally push against a topic and it was helpful, right? It, it, it was necessary in order to get some other person to realize like, hey, you might not be working with all the information. You might not be understanding that in a healthy way. I'm just saying it isn't for me. I'm way too introverted and non-confrontational and I usually just sit there silently because it feels like a lost cause to me. But no matter which tendency you have, this is something that can still be utilized. So, what is map making? I want to paint a hypothetical picture for you. Okay? Two people meet in the woods. And in each one, they've been navigating the terrain, you know, for some time now. And one of them's covered most of the eastern side of the woods, and the other one's covered most of the western half. They assumed, however, that they were the only one in the woods that day. And so when they count, encountered this other person, they were a bit surprised. Now, in this hypothetical illustration, let's say the one person claims that they have seen most of the woods and can help the other on their journey. Very polite of them in, you know, a sort of Midwestern passive-aggressive way, you know. But then, of course, the other person retorts that they have actually encountered most of the woods, and they are the one who can best explain how to navigate the terrain. So from there, they proceed to argue what the woods are truly like based on what they have seen and who has the better or the, the right experience and perspective of the woods. You know, each would defend that they know more and their definition of the woods is the best. And an argument would ensue. And in this, you know, each is going to be entrenched in their position that they know the woods and the other person doesn't. Eventually, this is going to end up with some antagonism against the other you know, as to who knows the woods best. 
Now, on the surface, this metaphor could be seen, I'm going to sidetrack here, as an attempt to argue for subjective truth or relativism. Um, and, and we briefly touched on that last episode. And I suppose that is kind of true. But here's, you know, let's have a little bit of a nerd moment. If you need to not pay attention or fast forward, go ahead. That's only true to the extent that each traveler of the woods has a limited understanding of the woods, right? This, this is the difference between you being able to perceive objective reality versus, uh, you know, a subjective propensity for knowing how something works. This is why we took all that time to talk about the limitations and finitude of perspective before we got into this. Because neither person has every single detail of the woods captured in their singular finite perspective. Neither traveler is working with all of the information. So if there is an objective, absolute reality of the woods, neither of these people in this argument would have it. And that gets into all of this, in the, the phenomenology and the limited experience and we don't, I don't want to rehash all of that, but this isn't about that there's no absolute truth because there's no one right way to understand the woods. I'm not, I'm not promoting that. There certainly could be an absolute truth and right way to understand the woods. woods. In fact, I'd like to believe that there are certain ways of perceiving and navigating the woods that are objectively correct or good or healthy and others that aren't. The point of this illustration is that neither person has fully captured that especially if the conversation specifically became about the best way to walk through the woods, each would have a very tactile assumption based on their limited experience, but their experience has not covered everything. And if this became the approach, right, arguing about who has the best depiction, one person may certainly win, right? They could even destroy the other's proposed method of navigating the woods and, and you know, the one person might concede like, Hey, the other person's tactic is, is better. That still doesn't mean that it's the best way. And this gets into a situation of, you know, arguing from fact versus value versus uh, policy, all that stuff that we, that we interacted with a few episodes ago. But when it comes to who knows the absolute objective right way, I'm guessing nobody does. Somebody might be closer than somebody else, but I doubt they've got all of the woods completely figured out. More importantly, whatever information that they could glean from each other, as soon as they began arguing, fighting, defending their position assuming that they have the objective reality and the other doesn't, at that point, any information they could have gleaned from the other person about the woods is off the table. Because the ensuing argument is just going to devolve into this attempt to defend a position. So now you're just trying to convince the other, which means you won't actually figure out what is right or what is wrong. At the end of this, you will just find out which of these people is more right or more wrong than the other one. Now, Metaphors aside, what I've just described is the opposite of map making. All right. This is what we've been seeing with how we typically approach disagreements with our perspectives. And this brings us to the first issue with the common approach of arguing or debating 
that we've handled is that it becomes a competition. Defending a position, an argument, this is a conflict mediation style called competition. When you view your perspective in the wrong way, that's what you default to. As we saw with conflict resolution, a competitive approach also, it means that the outcome is going to be win-lose. Further, it also means that potential unforeseen information, knowledge, opportunities, all of that, it's not going to be explored because the content of the argument will reflect the limited positions of the people arguing. There's no exploration. There's only defense. So you only have to work with, when arguing, the information that you have. And if you aren't working with all the information, a you know, myopically closed off approach will leave unaccumulated information out of reach. The competition approach, the competitive approach means the goal here is to win because somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. You're now against this person to see not what is right, but who is more right and in attempting to simply win or, you know, at worst, crush the other person, you have ensured that you're not actually going to learn anything from their position. So, what would be another angle, another approach to this situation that doesn't involve antagonism or competition or being against or arguing? What would be another approach that's not about who's more right or wrong, but that's willing to use everything available to figure out what is right, even if it means uh, giving up the tight grip on your current position and, you know, the finite, limited, myopic, egocentric perspective and our desire to be correct and certain. And that's the opportunity here. The difference in, in these approaches is that you're willing to give up winning. You're willing to give up that hope that maybe you have all of the information, even though it's impossible to. And by doing so, it opens up the opportunity for something else. Because if we only leave a conflict issue with the decision I often make, you know, to disengage, we've avoided a potential negative in conflict resolution, right? Not going to have the competitive approach, but we will also fail to accomplish any potential positive. So abstaining from arguing, defending positions and or myopically competing against someone with a different perspective with their own, you know, limited finitude. It's not just about avoiding a bad thing, right? An alternative approach also gives the possibility of an undiscovered potential that arguing isn't capable of accomplishing, you know, by being win-lose. And the other approaches of checking out, which are technically called avoidance or yielding, that also makes it impossible because we're not going to participate. So what do we have to do in order to have this positive outcome from conflict? Well, let's say that the two people in the woods run into each other, metaphorically, of course, and begin discussing where they have come from. They start putting their accumulated information on the table with a, with a sort of collaborative approach. 
one that honors you know the limited nature of their modes of reasoning acknowledges the finite nature of their accrued perspective and all of that epistemological phenomenological stuff that we've spent so much time talking about what would happen is there would be a discussion on their unique experience of the woods you know how they got there what they saw what they didn't see their limits their assumptions uh, and they would offer everything they can about the topography and the landscape and the creatures and the details of their traveling. And what would happen in this approach is that the other, first and foremost, wouldn't be seen as an antagonist. They're, they're not someone to compete with because they aren't in the way of your certainty. Instead, in the hopes of achieving a more objective perspective that you know than each has in the current moment, the other becomes a source to help them attain the goal of knowing the woods better than they do at that specific moment. So the two people with this approach would get out a piece of paper and begin drawing what they have seen and what they know. And each person would use their unique perspective to help the other fill out even more of the map. Choosing this method would mean it would it would mean that you you're not going to win in the end you're not going to beat the other but you both might win together because you both would leave the encounter with a more full version of the woods than either of you would have gotten on your own so you don't you're not going to win you're not going to prove that you were right and you're not going to have the certainty we so desire as human beings but you're actually going to know more and I think you'd be better off for it. Now, before we get into how we actually do this, right, the function of this technique, I want to confront an issue of why we choose the first approach. Why when, you know, hypothetically, we come across somebody in the woods do we go, you know, my perspective is better than yours. I actually know more about this. And why, why do we choose to compete? And the goal of map making isn't, you know, tolerance. You know, famously articulated, tolerance doesn't welcome, it allows. It isn't just being nice or respectful. The goal here is that acknowledging that both of us, you know, as limited yet conscious sentient beings, that we don't have all the information. And so if we collaborate, then our rationalism and our empiricism and our logic and our sensory observations and experiences, all of that, we will transcend our limitations, our individual perspective, and include whatever further information we can glean instead of just eliminating a view that's foreign and getting rid of it because it isn't ours. So instead of just dismissing whatever doesn't align with our metal detector-like perspectives, we transcend and include what's past us, which allows us to see more than our limited eyes are capable of on their own. By using map making, it's not just allowing somebody else's perspective to work. It's actually learning from that perspective to see more of the world than you're gonna on your own. You'll get closer to objective truth. You'll get closer to full knowledge and wisdom by utilizing all the perspectives that are running around around you all of the time. If you fight with those, though, you're going to stay right where you are. And this is why I get so frustrated with our culture. 
because we're all about winning the debate, winning the argument, proving who's right and who's wrong. And we're not proving who's right or who's wrong. We're proving who is more right. I'm interested not in who can articulate something better or even who's closer to the truth compared to somebody else. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what's true. I can't get there on my own. And so our competitive approach, this common approach of arguing, you know, it isn't for me too far of a stone's throw away from barbaric tribalism. It's just disguised as intellectualism. Our tendency to hide behind insular groups of apparent commonality is safe. But it's like it's like taking life as this beautiful maze. Life's journey is going through this beautiful complexity of, of the world and then locking the doors on the maze. And so now the maze of human existential experience is actually a prison. And when we decide that we're just going to stick with our position, our perspective and defend it, we essentially lock those doors. And we just took the beautiful journey of the maze of life and it's a prison. So let's step back for a moment and acknowledge that, you know, as we've seen through history again and again, this tribal closed off tendency, it's quite natural. In the change series, we discussed that one of the reasons we resist change is because it disrupts our disposition toward predictability and stability. Now, why do we close off from anything foreign or different? Because it will mess with the comfort uh, that our echo chambers provide. Change is always disruptive from what we're familiar with. It's a loss of the terrain that we're familiar with, right? If you come in and this is how you understand the the woods and somebody adds something new to that, you just lost that particular understanding of the woods. But also, change is a difficult process. So we would rather have the reverberating sound waves of confirmation bias that offer a semblance of certainty that our, you know, finitude impossibly yearns for, we would rather have that than face the unknown. We develop a perspective, often, this is worth saying, through inheritance or happenstance, like what you happen to be exposed to or what your parents told you, and then we cling to it. And we allow it to singularly reside in our consciousness as the correct way because it is, of course, our way. There's a problem, not only with what we've talked about with epistemology, right? Your perspective is naturally limited and finite, but it's also kind of random how you develop your current perspective of things. Those are just the parts of the woods that you happen to see, partially because that's where you were born and who you were around. And so to assume that it's right and those other people must be wrong, that's just ignorant. Go explore (laughs) Go see more things because what would have happened if you would have happened to be born on the eastern side of the woods than the western side? You'd have a different perspective, wouldn't you? So we should all keep from stopping where we are with what we've happened to gain and start being willing to use this collaborative approach. It's intellectually honest. It's epistemologically honest. And it's actually going to help you get the thing you want more. And there's a name for why we crave this. And it's called the philosophy of desire. 
Okay, we crave certainty and comfort and assurance. the, The world is ambiguous and it's difficult. And so what we do is we take on an intellectual value system, it's called, right? And again, this happens to be something we inherited or that we've just been exposed to and is normal in culture. And this can be a religious affiliation, can be a political affiliation, it can be an ideology, it can be like a lifestyle, or it can be, you know, the the emphasis and elevation of science, anything. We take on an intellectual value system and we statically close off our traversing of reality because it fulfills that internal desire for certainty and security, right? These mazes that we turn into prisons, it actually performs a psychological, biological, and sociological role that showcases the beholden ailments of the human condition. And all of these methodologies we use to try to enhance our survival, but is actually at our own demise. And the experience of, you know, a self-isolated construct, it accomplishes an individualized goal of what our brains and our consciousness seems hardwired to desire. But I think it does so at our own expense. But that's just what we have to acknowledge. That the reason that we choose often handle disagreements about our perspective this way is because it's a survival issue. We're not just dealing with, you know, being right or being wrong. This is about how we understand ourselves as human beings. So when two people meet in the woods, the tendency is to maintain the position because quite frankly, there is a lot at stake if one certainty is shown to not be so certain. Right? We, we are right. At least our banal confidence exists to make us feel like we are right. But this is also, consider this, why winning an argument doesn't usually change the other person's perspective. Because the other person's perspective is holding together their human identity. They're not going to concede defeat. So both people, they're on the attack. There's only defense. You're you're not exchanging information when you're in an argument. You are a threat because you are potentially taking away the ground under someone else's feet. And every inch of their mortal soul will fight to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so if you've ever wondered like, man, my evidence was so good. How did that falter? No matter how unbiased you are, the other person has not only submitted themselves to their own evidence, no matter how shaky it is, their very perseverance and identity is on the line no matter how good your argument is, right? They're not going to buy it because this isn't about being right or wrong. This is about how one understands their own conception of reality, which is about their understanding of themselves. And religious folks are often accused of this, rightly so, you know, of having an ideology that's unfalsifiable. No evidence can disprove them. But in a way, Anyone who clings to a perspective may be guilty of the same closed mindset. I've seen materialist atheists who hate religion doing the same thing. 
And I hate to, I'm sorry for bringing up the big words again. This is a phenomenological issue, okay? Because not only is your perspective egocentric and limited and finite because you only see the world through your eyes, you know, what you experience is what's real to you. The world is based on how you experience the world, which means perception is reality. And how you see the world, therefore, it's going to impact and form your understanding of the world as real. And so our phenomenological perceptions lead us to prematurely conclude that that's reality. That's part of this problem. Because we want to survive, because we want to be certain in an ambiguous world, we prematurely go, so this must be true, which just happens to be the perspective that I currently have. And then we argue about it because we need that to feel like we're safe. I, I don't know if uh, the anybody's familiar with the, the phrase deus ex machina. Um, this is actually a good metaphor for how we hold on to these opinionated absolutes. So this was something in ancient Greek plays, you know, the storylines going, and all of a sudden they would just like introduce some random... Uh, a story bit or some character like a god or goddess that would just resolve the ending. It, it was just a really lazy way to, to finish off a play because, you know, sometimes those conclusions were hard or time was uh, constrained or something like that. Well, when our, our firm perspective becomes the only perspective that we'll take, when we see searching and exploring the world, you know, when we lock the doors while basking in the reverberating sound waves of our confirmed echo chambers it's like those sudden endings in those greek plays it's a lazy way to resolve the tension of our finite experience within the limited duration of our lifespan but all of this means that arguing becomes a phenomenological means of survival this is why people don't tend to respond to your good points by saying wow i never thought of that that way I will now throw away everything I've staked my life on and everything I've worked to be comfortable with all because you attacked my position better than I could have defended it. Kingdoms never lost a battle or war and went, you know, you're the better foe, so be it. The vengeance just cyclically continued. We don't give up that easily. And the philosophy of desire through intellectual value systems is the reason why. Arguments like fights then don't show what is right because they are about the competition and the winner is often just the one with better rhetoric. It might not even show who's more right. It's just the one who can argue better. Like the way that our culture does arguments is like trial by combat. It doesn't actually prove anything other than who's a better fighter. So if this doesn't work, what do we do? And my hope is that you caught my nuance that disagreement and division, like conflict, is inevitable, which means diversity is a constant. No two people are ever going to perceive the woods the same way. And, and while this can be negative, you know, it's often the dominant mode we engage with for all of these survival reasons, this diversity, these different perspectives... The point here is that they can be used for good. 
because if we choose the route of collaboration, then the current diversity of perspectives can actually come together for mutual development. Right? There's a lot of scenarios where two people can see something a different way, and when they share that information, they both see it better. You know, think about this within creativity discussions. When you have an alternative mind, and there's actually a lot of research on this, when you have an alternative mind to add to your process, it's been shown to exponentially increase the creative potential of a person. See, diversity gives increased access to options. So if you only go for an homogenous approach or, you know, competition where you're going to destroy anything different than you, then, you know, you're going to conclude that diversity is bad. If you view it like having more tools, then it's good. And this is the groundwork for something referred to as unity and diversity. Martin Luther King uses it with his uh, social movement logistics. You know, he put a variety of voices from every spectrum possible at the table because their diversity would only strengthen their success. You know, if you're held together by a common unifying bond, then whatever's different is actually able to work together for that common bond. It's like, you know, different flavors in a single dish or different notes in a song. When you have a shared vision, then diversity is actually desirable. Collaboration assumes that there's unity and diversity, that there is something that holds us together as human beings and therefore makes room for whatever divergence we have. And as long as the other person doesn't perfectly reflect the best fully informed version of a human being, we would only benefit by having many finite voices combine to transcend what individuals aren't capable of on their own. Like instead of seeing who can sing better and trying to outsing everyone, we harmonize our voices and produce a sound that none of us could construe on our own. And in map making, the collaborative approach creates that common bond. We have a common interest or goal. You know, we want to see the woods the best possible way. And that common bond allows the differences to add to each other's perspectives and strengthens them both. Instead of a competitive, defensive posture, we transcend ourselves and include what was once exterior to us. Instead of arguing, we leave with a better map. And let's be honest, we could all use better, more complete maps. But we will only attain that if we choose the second approach to our disagreement and divergent perspectives. We have to let go of our positions. We have to let go of our desire for certainty and being right and our tendency to compete. And we need to see this different perspective as a benefit, not something to fear, and not something to eliminate. Our maps will only be better if we meet in the woods, pull out the paper, and start map making together. So that's the concept. Next time, We're going to talk about how we actually pull this off. What are the techniques and the postures necessary to 
execute map making in, in, in a real situation. So that's what we'll do next time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later.